Okay, so your accent then is a little bit diluted, is it, or is that fairly common for Kentucky? Because I don't, I don't always know where to place people. Because when yeah, I think of the yeah. South, I think of you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, it is Louisville, Kentucky. Like it's people, it's arguable if Louisville, Kentucky's in the South. It's either the southern, the northernmost southern city, or the southernmost northern city, as they say. Okay. I think that it is firmly uh, a southern town because of the way you can get anyone at any point to have a bourbon with you. That feels to me like particularly <laughs> like the decadence of like, southern culture. Uh, I sound like people from my neighborhood where I grew up, right? It's um, it is how I sound is effectively in Louisville, kind of a class designation of the neighborhood I grew up in. People around here sound like me. Okay. Uh, people in my family who grew up in other parts of town don't sound like me. Um, but I still have Southerners. I say y'all a lot. And I put the letter L in the word H-I-M. So <laughs> right. it's saying like, I told him, which feels weird. I'll say, yeah. I told him, I told him what to do. So I, there's, it's there, you know, but I, I don't cool. think that, I don't think, what's, what's your accent? Oh, mine. Yeah. So I'm from Wigan, England. So Northwest. But I was going to say, you sound like I lived in Edinburgh for a while and you okay. sound somewhat like not entirely like the Scots I knew, but, but Northern England. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. And, it, and it's because I was, I was in the army for, for just over nine years and I lived with guys from Scotland and uh, Wales and, you know, down South. And you know, so it got blended everywhere. Then I moved here and had to really slow down and enunciate properly to be understood, yeah. and just get through life. Right. So it's yeah. been, yeah. it's been through the ring of so my accents are a real, a real mishmash now. Well, yours is significantly more compelling than my rather tattered, almost middle American accent. I'm, I'm jealous of that, man. It's kind of funny, though, because you, you, it, you know, because back in England, you go 10, 15 miles and the accent changes really quite distinctly. Yeah, so to yeah. have that same thing. In, and, and I think obviously in America, too, you've got very distinct accents, like the, the Boston accent is different to New York and that's different to the South. And there's all those different sort of variations. But in Canada... We don't really have that to nearly the same degree. Like oh, everyone that from, is interesting. Everyone from BC to Alberta sounds basically the same. Ontario is mean, a, a little... Quebec's different totally, yeah. Okay. Ontario's a little bit different than the eastern provinces that have the little bit of the Irish, Bostonian uh -huh. kind of thing going on. But other than that, everyone's got the same same thing. And it's a very generic sort of general Canadian, you know? It is interesting. There's There are distinct regional dialects, even within Kentucky. You know, I might be yeah. overstating a little bit how different people sound in the city. Like Louisville's a big city for cities. Like it's like okay, the 16th largest city in the in the country. I'm not trying to boost that as anything other than to say that it's right. larger than people think it is, right? And it's a big footprint. So there's variations. But if you go to eastern Kentucky, like uh, like the mountains of Appalachia versus like the western Kentucky coal fields, those right. folks sound really different. And but even eastern Kentucky is, I think, distinctly different within the vowel sounds from eastern Tennessee. And they're just okay. like right there. So I mean, it's it's the mosaic is it's real. It's it's fascinating. To bring it's interesting that because it ties into something that I'd flagged up. Because I okay, what I, what I do with these when I'm talking to authors is what I like to do is read the book just as a sort of read through. I don't you know spend two three days or a week or whatever with it. But yeah. then actually before I'm going to talk to you, I'm going to sit down and read it end to end because I really want to get a sense of the whole. Because reading a book that way definitely changes the way you consume oh, it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's how we think about when we write it because we think about it as a single right. performance, right? But also yes. in the context of like the people like me who wrote thirty-three and a thirds, it's easy to read it in one sitting. They're more booklets than books. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 that length that length works for it. But you'd written in there because and it, part of what we're talking about right now is you said that I'm not so naive as to think there's something as stable as quote unquote the South. Yeah, and I think even when it's something as simple as the accent or dialect or those sort of regional differences in the, the people in, in the Appalachian Mountains and the, the people in the coal fields, they just have different 
professions. So that yeah. it drives their identity completely differently. So yeah. I think maybe we'll I'll, I'll kind of juggle my uh, form around here, the dead sentient. So maybe we'll just jump straight into a little bit of that about sure. talking about, you know, so for my listeners, um, Michael wrote the 33 and a third books on Southern accents, but it really sort of frames um, more discussion about the South, the role of racism and culture and all those kinds of things in uh, within that context of that album. So the first question then, I found it really interesting talking about or thinking about um, issues like race in the US within that context of art. So my first question is, how important do you think it is retrospectively to think about an album like Southern Accents in a modern context versus the context that it was written in in 1985? Because I know you had, that seems like it was a bit of a challenge for you to get through that, that sort of thinking. Wait, what do you mean? Okay, so do we sort of say, well, Tom Petty should have known better in 1985 and he sort of apologized in 2015 and at different points. So what sort of standard do we hold an artist to when we're considering their work, when it's something, you know, in the context of racism or racial issues? Yeah, I mean, what I want to say, and this is going to sound glib, is all of the above, right? I right. think that one can look at an album within the context uh, that it's created and say, well, it's uh, a, a, a an artifact of its time, right? I can understand that argument. Yeah. Why I'm not entirely convinced of that argument and why I think that it is perfectly viable and valuable to retrospectively apply uh, different perspectives. It's because it's not that the way that we think about race in the United States, like since Breonna Taylor, for instance, George yeah. Floyd, where people become acutely aware of it, it's not that those ideas are new. Those ideas already existed in 1985 when, when Petty was working on this. They existed in 1975. They existed in 1875. Right. I mean, these yeah. ideas have always been there. And um, to say that it, he or an artifact is a thing of its time is to entirely forget that. And every time there are people that transcend the general assumptions or general pathologies of thinking of their time. Yeah. Right. So that makes sense. They got a little bit. There's a lot of syllables going on. Like that, that might not have been that clear. But I think that, um, you know, you, what prompted you to ask this question in this order is being meet by, by the observation that I in the book where I say there's not such thing as one South. Yeah, which is true. And there's also not a single thing such as a spirit of the time, right? So there's a prevailing idea of the time. And it's easy to look back and it's lazy to look back and say, well, that is the time and it is of its time. And that's a real convenient thing to say, because that means that you don't think there is a deep history to cultural or racial or economic or political or any complaints that right. people raise that are in opposition to power structures, right? It's a way of naturalizing things that I think is, is destructive. So this is not to say that Tom Petty or anybody has on their shoulder the entire history of X, Y, or Z, but it's to say that if you wanna actually look at someone's contribution to American culture or world culture, you need to look at it within the continuum of the culture and not necessarily solely in the isolation of right. the time it was created. But like, again, I'm going to be mealy-mouthed and broken-backed about it. I do think there are ways that are interesting to explore what it meant in its time. And there's a little bit of that in the books. I do talk about how it was yeah. not, the stuff, the the indictments that were coming out against, the, that I levy against this record. I have to put an asterisk on the end of the sentence because I want to of make course. something very clear. Um, were being made at the same time by folks as varied as a bunch of jazz musicians in New York City, but also Peter Buck and R.E.M., right? Yeah. The asterisk is 
and you might end up asking about this. I won't say too much, but there's a lot of folks who think that I totally just shit on Petty in the book, which is yeah, the I case. Don't get that I think sense. it comes out a hero in the end. Yeah. I just think I take him as seriously as he wants to be taken, right? So, and I'm sure we'll get into more of that. But yeah, yeah. well, very much at face value. Absolutely. And that's where I think my thought process after reading this book sort of really challenged me to start thinking about, it's almost like, and because you mentioned Trump and you mentioned some of the sort of the, you know, more, more current things that are happening. It's almost like it's getting harder to have that conversation now because people just want, you know, with the saturation of media and everything is entertainment now. We just need everything in a really quick soundbite that we can just latch Mm -hmm. onto when these things are far more nuanced than that. And it's really difficult. So I could see that, you know, when you write a book like this, where you are challenging an artist and a very much beloved artist, mm-hmm. beloved to me and millions of other people, and if you, if people don't, absolutely, but people, if you don't read through to the end and really try to understand what you're saying, then you would miss that. And probably I can see maybe the reception would be a little bit frosty in certain quarters where you were attacking this this guy. Well, no, we're, we're sort of, you're to me, you're attacking the the framework that's built up around why Tom Petty, of all people, ends up being colorblind, or not colorblind, but blind to what he's doing. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know no, I, I think mean? that's like you it's... said it as well as I could. The one thing okay. I want to add, which I think is connected, but I think it's an important point, is that, and it comes into play with the people, the way they look at the book, but I think this comes into play when we have these sorts of conversations in American culture in particular, is that people have gotten out of the habit of attributing sincerity to someone they disagree with. They right. don't think you sincerely have a position that's different of yours. They think that you must be trolling. In the right. context of me writing my book, it's like, well, he waited until someone was dead to cash in, which misunderstands two things. One, it misunderstands the entire economics of the publishing industry. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, Petty had agreed to meet with me for this book yeah. before he before he um, passed away. So, and he, but Tom Petty was a smart person. He knew what I was going to want to talk about if I called him and said, hey, let's talk about Southern accents. Of course. Like, there's no way to get around what was going on. Like this was all pre-Charlottesville, yep. pre-George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but it was still things I was thinking about. Sorry. That, I feel like that was all over the place. But yeah, I agree with you. I think that's entirely right. And Because it, it brought up in the book, as I was reading through, there were certain sections. I, I started thinking, and before I even got to it, I said, well, something like the Dukes of Hazard, which really glamorized the Confederate flag, the general is a name, sort of that mm-hmm. idea of the good old boys. Which even mm-hmm. in the song, the good old boys being a good thing because the, the Dukes were fun. The general Lee yeah. was fun and Daisy yeah. Duke was a lot of fun for a young boy, right? Fun. So yeah. it makes it sort of, I think it it takes the edge off it, right? It sort of rounds off those edges and makes it easier to just think, ah, oh, well, you know, like you said, it's, it's easy then to say, well, it was in the past, you know, we've got past that now where in recent history shows, we just haven't yet. We really haven't. And yeah. again, that whitewashing of it, I can't think of it's a better like- word, but that... It's you know. the it's the popularizing and in some instances the sexualizing or the adventurizing, which is a word I think I just made up, of the heritage argument, yeah. right? The the well, this is our heritage. It's not about the history of racial dominations. It's about the heritage of what it means to be Southern, right? So it's a, it's right. pulling away these fun cultural things and saying, well, these are entirely isolated from the history they grew out of. And yeah. there are people that very smart people that I think can make powerful but ultimately unsuccessful arguments about severing heritage and history i don't buy those arguments yeah um but i think in the things like like these sound like sometimes when i start talking about this i think people think these feel like such small things but you look at the duke of the hazard dukes of hazards yeah. you look at aunt Jemima's syrup right i mean all these things are direct continuations yeah. of not only confederate but reconstruction and jim crow thinking right and they naturalize these things right yeah. And like you said, as part of culture, a record 
from an artist like Tom Petty can do the same thing and yeah. did do the same thing because we ended up with all those battle flags at the concerts and Tom yeah. had to eventually say, enough, I've realized yeah. what I've done and I've done what I've done isn't right and cop to yeah. it. But it is that it's that interesting. Like I said, I hadn't thought about that in that type of linear framework before where it's incremental and it's sort of it's insidious because you don't really in isolation, each one of them on their own doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Right. But when you compile them all into one continuous narrative, yeah, it's just keeping that population at heel. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. And like in the context of the record, and I say this a little bit, a lot, <laughs> a little bit, like it's a big chunk of the book, <laughs> is that the thing that like the one South comment comes in the context of the fact that there's no nod toward African-American culture in the South at all in Southern yeah. accents, right? And so what the South ends up being in a lot of people's imagination is the white South. That's a big problem. Like yeah. that's just on its face, a big problem. If you want to think about what it means to understand this large section and historically turbulent part of the country. But I have a question for you. And you're saying like, this is something I hadn't thought of. One of the things that I think is provocative or people find provocative, it wasn't supposed to be a provocation, but I think people have somewhat found it provocative is they would say, how dare you implicate Tom Petty in this? How dare you say that he is part of this either subterranean or even on the surface, like stream of culture, right? Yeah. Which is what you were just talking about. And my response when people say this to me is like, well, if I had done this with Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen, right? Or folks like that, you would say, oh, well, of course, that makes perfect sense because they right. have the depth. And what I'm actually saying is, well, Petty has the depth because even though he's more popular, it is still an expression of American culture and American artistry. So it is yeah. entirely fair. And actually taking him on the terms he set for himself with this record, which he wanted to be art, right? So yeah. if it had been like Bob Dylan in the context or Springsteen in the context, would it have felt like less of an aha moment for you or would it have still? That's a good question, yeah. Um, I think because Dylan sort of inexorably tied up with the zeitgeist and always was and sort of that, that hippie movement in the 60s, I don't think it would have been as jarring, okay. right? Because, because yeah. he's, he's sort of aligned with that Springsteen I don't know, because he's sort of, he does one thing, and I've got in trouble with a couple of Springsteen fans over saying this, but he does one thing really, really, he does that New Jersey thing super, super well, right? And he defines that area. And again, I don't know whether he does bring in enough of those sort of diverse elements of that part of the country, because I'm not as into his music, right? And I don't know that area as well, but but for, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's See, a difficult that's question. I think that the answer is that he doesn't bring in that diversity. I think when you look at Springsteen, right. what you end up as having a class and economic analysis, right? Yeah. And a lot of it. And then the working, the working class hero, hero. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like, and those are not the only two examples. Those are the examples that just popped to mind right now. But like, yeah. I think that it's the fact that so, Petty is so beloved and people want to take him seriously, but also dismiss him, right? As a serious artist. Yeah. That makes this seem like an unfair, uh, I don't know, like I jumped him unfairly, like I Rochambeau'd him or something. But I mean, he, the, the whole idea behind Southern Accents was a change. Like he was yeah. trying to be, like you said, create art, not shit. So that's what he was trying yeah. to do. Not that, I mean, I think I think his his view back on Long After Dark is unkind. I think it's a phenomenal album. Brilliant, Dude, brilliant I'm gonna, We're going to talk about that a little bit. For sure. Um, so this was a, it was a very deliberate, right hand, hard right-hand turn. So, like you said, and, and if he's saying that I, I wanted to do this thing on the South, you have to take him at face value because yeah. if you're going to do that for the rest of his career, you certainly have to do it here. Mm -hmm. And it, it is uncomfortable, like you said, because we do hold him as a, a virtuous person who really fought so many good fights throughout his career that I think it's it would be wrong not to be 
critical, you know, mm -hmm. in a sort of that, in, a, in a, an academic sense, critical mm -hmm. of this period. I think I think that does him a disservice, mm -hmm. and it certainly yeah. does the songs a disservice. Eventually, when you get to the creative side and we start talking about the songs yeah. themselves, it does that a disservice too because you, you you're missing then a part of where those songs came from. Yeah, yeah. So, no, we're we're know. vibrating on the same frequency there. Yeah. yeah, entirely. So I, I guess then it's part of one of the questions that I sent you is. At what point did you come to that realization with Southern Accents about, wait a minute, there's a there's a problem here. It's not representative. You know, I don't think that what Tom's actually trying to say with a song like Rebels Say, where he's in this character, that's not coming across and that's too easily misinterpretable by people who want to take that and use it as some sort of stick mm -hmm. to advance on agenda. So at what point did you sort of get that realization about Southern Accents? Oh, the, that realization was the reason I wrote the book. Yes. So, so when... Okay. Yeah. So what's the genesis of that, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. Okay. So um, I just thought it would be much more interesting. Most of, so for your listeners, uh, and maybe you, you say this or something in an intro, but I wrote Bloomsbury uh, took over a, a line of books from Continuum called 33 and a Third. They've been going for about a decade. I think mine is the 142nd or 143rd volume in the series. Series is called 33 and a Third. Each book is ostensibly about an album, hence 33 and a Third. But beyond that, authors have wide autonomy to write however they want. So John Darnielle from the Mountain Goats wrote about Black Sabbath's Master of Reality, but he wrote a novella, right? Okay. So it's, it's fiction. Uh, a lot of folks will just do a track-by-track -track breakdown, and they really get deep in the weeds on recording technique and process, right? Yep. Some people really want to look at the way that it was positioned in the culture. A variety of different approaches and then you can pick the books you like based on the album but that isn't necessarily a good indicator of what books you're really going to dig because people take very different approaches but almost without fail people always pick albums that they think are great right okay so yeah. for me if i was going to pick something that was conceptually coherent and entirely successful but still anchored to petty i would pick wildflowers of course but it feels very boring to me to just dilate on greatness and just talk about that yeah so southern accents is interesting to me because i think it's a ambitious and manifold failure from the cultural point of view from the artistic point of view like it's i think a lot of it sounds bad and the fact that this was his move like what's so you know at this point in his career he wanted to make a change from long after dark like what's the skinny white kid from the south going to do when he wants to like make a bid for artistic legitimacy he's going to yeah. write about this right and it that it just didn't land right it didn't land and i think that's a really compelling thing to look at particularly in light of his latent career change of heart and uh apology for some yeah. of his actions during that time so that nest of stuff all was very on its face it was weird right and there's also some personal like how i came to discover petty which is very different from what Petty's career arc is typically thought to be by people who've known him for a long time. And that's an issue of age, which is interesting to talk about, but not in the book, like when you're born, right? Yeah. Um, specifically when you're born, like in someone's career arc. But all these things kind of came together when I was thinking about what I wanted to write for the series. Usually people um, just sort of toss, there's open calls for proposals. Okay. There was a period where um, they had four fancy academics or writers come in and start commissioning writers that they admired. And there's a woman named Amanda Petrosich. She's a staff writer for the New Yorker. She's written 
on like 78 collecting and folk music. And she did the Nick Drake book in the 35th surgery of Pink Moon. And Amanda wrote to me and she goes, hey, you know, we're looking, they brought me on as one of the inquiring editors. I'm looking to people that I admire and I would like to have write a book to have a commission. Are you interested? And I said, absolutely. And I said, I want to, and she goes, well, okay, but you've got to write a full proposal. It's still vetted by the entire board, yeah. right? But it's just rather than the open call, we've got four people that are selecting two books each. And so I think that um, the other book she picked, this is a plug for this book, it's by a guy named Brian Wagner, and it's on this incredible album from the 70s called Wild Chapatulis. Just check out the Wild Chapatulis record. I will send you an email with the name because how it sounds isn't how it's spelled. It's incredible. Okay. It's so much fun. And it's about New Orleans second line culture and like the Indian culture in New Orleans. Um, so I said, I want to write about, you'll see where it resonates because I wanted to write about a band that writes about history with a capital H. It's like, I want to do the drive-by truckers and I want to do the right. dirty South because it's their labor album. And it's also, you can think about the way that Jason Isbell approaches race in his songs and the way that Cooley and Hood approach race in their songs in the incohate idea I had which would have been born out at the time, but different now because we're later in Isabel's career, is that he had not really mentioned race very explicitly while Cooley and Hid did. The difference being about how they were born on either side of the Brown v. Board education desegregation ruling. Right. So it made things a lot more explicit or implicit or something. Totally uncooked idea, but I kind of spit this out at her. I was like, so I'm going to throw this proposal. And she said, uh, well, you know, it's great, but all three, all four of us, if we count you, have uh, people who want to write books on DBT. And they're all going to go through the acquisitions <laughs> process. You'd have a better chance with something else. And so I was like, okay. And then I thought, well, what? I was talking to a buddy of mine named Greg Downs, who's a fiction writer and a tremendous historian of the Reconstruction. We were at a bar in New York and we were just spitballing ideas. And we stumbled across like, what about Southern accents, which attempts to kind of be like a trucker's album right. so far as it picks up the South, but it totally drops it. And then once you listen to it and once you start to think about it, and once I thought about my musical development, vis-a-vis petty yeah. then it all became a really kind of exciting thing for me to think about but the real thing is for the series once i realized i wasn't going to gdp i realized i didn't want to do something that was just i didn't want to write a love letter which and i mean that was, a lot. that was a big messy lot of words that came out of my mouth i'm sorry about that oh no no that's great i mean it, it's one of those things it's one of the things that i've found challenging about doing this podcast a little bit especially engaging with the Tom Petty Nation and some of the hardcore fans where you really have to be careful oh, about yeah. saying anything negative at all, right? But objectively, oh, yeah. Mary's New Car is not a good song. Objectively. It's just, it just objectively, it's, it's, it doesn't go anywhere. It's a weak lyric. It's, you know what I mean? Like, it can even go stronger. It's a bad song. It is a it's bad not song. It's not a strong song. It's a bad song. <laughs> it's heartbreaking considering things like um, the image of me. Oh, God, I'm forgetting the names of the, the trailer and walking trailer. through the fire and yeah. God, is it the there's one song that is just, it's the last song that they recorded with Denny Cordell. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is, I think that is the title. Yeah. It was an old, um, Conway Twitty recorded initially, but I'm forgetting the guy that actually wrote it. It's an incredible cover. They were a great cover band when they wanted to be. Like, that's so much better. Also, trailer. I mean, there's so many things that could have and should have. Like, um, walking into the fire, walking out. The one that came out on American Treasure. It was yeah. an outtake from walking the session. From the, should have yeah, been on there the fire. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. So many great songs. Well, and there were, there, you know, because it was a double album. It, it, when they ended it, with ended it with enough songs. So there's obviously stuff that we haven't heard and yeah. we don't know about. Um, and you touch on one. I can't remember what it is now. There was one song that Jeez. you touched on. Yes. Yeah, so that, clan song. again, that's a, that would have been very interesting, interesting yeah. to see like, how we handle that, right? When I spoke to Mike and Benmont, 
about yeah. it. They didn't know anything about that. Like that's that is something I believe I only know from maybe one line in the Paul Zolo book, the interviews with Petty. Yeah. Uh, book, which is a great collection of interviews. I think it's mentioned in there. It might have been in the Zane's yeah. biography, but it's it just shows up in one spot and I couldn't find anything Any else reference about to it. it. Yeah. It's funny because if you think you know something like that, had he taken that subject matter and really gone to town on it, it could have actually sort of limited the impact or the damage that the album had in, in terms of sort of that stuff, right? If he's sort of been Indeed. a little bit more clear, but... Yeah, I mean, know. I wouldn't have... Yeah, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now in this way. Yeah. But I mean, again, I mean, I wonder too that I would have loved to have seen that concept album in its entirety because, again, I mean, you, you definitely bring this up in the book too. They are individual sort of vignettes. It's not... I mean, and I, you kind of have the idea that it's it's one central character through sort of Rebels and Spike, and I don't I don't get that feeling quite as much. It's more sort of these little vignettes of mm, yes. different parts of, of Southern life. And one thing, you know, my sort of rationalization to myself a little bit at first was, well, yeah, but he's just sort of painting the pictures from the viewpoint of what he saw growing up and what his experience is, because we can only write from our own experience, really. Yeah, yeah. And is there a danger sometimes with white people writing about the black experience that it's disingenuous and all this kind of stuff? But... Growing up in Gainesville, you, he's definitely going to be, he's definitely going to know that black people are a big part of that mm -hmm. culture and a big part of that community. So like you said, it's, it's, it's guilt by absence of, by yeah. absence, right? You sort of, yeah. you know, it's, it's the, it's the not all men thing, right? Of course, yeah, not all men, but enough right. that it's a problem. <laughs> right. where it's part right. of the problem, you know? I mean, I, so I think I might even say this in the book. One thing that, um, I will counsel uh, this to everyone is like, after you write a book, never read it. <laughs> um, and I, I, but I do think I mentioned this and I've actually now lost the train of thought I was going to say, oh, is that the album in itself, since it is such a diluted version of what the initial ambition was, like there's nine yeah. tracks. I think they effectively have three different identities, maybe even four if you count um, the last track, the um, Robbie Robertson produced. Best of, best of everything. Best yeah. of everything. So there are these issues that I see embedded in the album. And that's a little bit blunted by the fact that the album itself is incoherent, right? So in, in the book, there is a conversation of the album. It's not all of this culture stuff. I discuss the yeah. album too, the album as the album and all the sort of like cocaine stories and the handbreaking stuff that happens during that. But I think where it really becomes bad and an unforced error and an embrace of this stuff is when he starts to go out on tour. Yeah. Right. And then the iconography of the tour becomes the iconography of the Confederacy. And that's when people start showing up and like raising the battle flags in the concert. It's like there's two things like there's the album, which isn't a good look. And I think is also just a bad recording yeah. for many reasons. I thought that was going to be an uncontroversial opinion <laughs> until I started talking to people about it. I had no idea. Sorry, lovers of this and let me if I've had enough because I think they're both bad. Um and there's also the argument about how like his allergic reaction to those albums created like the Southern California free fall on Tom Petty was in the book as well as an argument. Yeah. But um, I think that the tour had more of a, I'm more, I'm harder on him about the tour. I think that I am. hundred percent. I would say that's absolutely accurate. Like I said, I mean, I don't think, and so when I, I go through my podcast and I do an episode on each song and I rate one at the end and I kind of toyed with the idea of not doing that, but I thought, well, you know, it's something to get people talking. It's a discussion yeah, point, yeah. maybe mention to it. And, but the, the highs on this album are really high. Rebels, I think, is just a, just a fantastic, sonically, it's a brilliant song. It's a great Not song. the best production. Dogs on the Run, so much fun. And I'm glad you identified that as one of those hidden gems. It Spikes, is. Spikes, I think it's my favorite song on the album. Southern yes. Accent title track is great, but Dogs is just... Yeah. 
Spike's great. Yeah. Southern Spike's Access great. is great. Don't Come Around Here No More is one of those weird things that only exists in and of itself. It doesn't sound like anything else anyone's ever done. Yeah, yeah. But then the rest of it's just this sort of, well, what's going on here now? Like what, what, you know, and you, they all sounds different. And when you do have Dave Stewart producing, when you have Tom and Dave Stewart producing, when you got Tom and Mike and Jimmy Iovine producing, when you got Robbie Roberts, of course it's not going to sound cohesive. Right. And and, and I, it's funny because I'd used the words glorious mess on my Facebook feed when I posted about the album. And I, I listened to the album. I still enjoy the album because it's just all over the place. It is. But it's yeah. this schizophrenic attempt to do something different when really take those three Dave Stewart songs, put them on an EP. Or release Don't Come Around Here No More as a single and put one of the other ones as a B-side and maybe let's just drop It Ain't Nothing to Me because it's, eh, whatever. Because it ain't nothing to you. It ain't nothing to me, no. <laughs> um, and then Mary's New Car is a B-side. And it's like, okay, but I don't know how you've come up with this. From get, How do you get from this idea of I want to make this Southern concept album to this mishmash of different creative ideas? And I always appreciate artists challenging themselves and trying to mm-hmm. find different ways to express themselves. But to do it all on one album like this is fairly unusual for an artist who's at a bit of a turning point now in his career and decided that he wants to change things. So I mm. found that that's that's really interesting in itself. And I wondered sometimes if when Dave Stewart comes in, obviously he comes in as the brash Brit, you know, he's yeah. all, all fur coat and no knickers and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but he also has no concept of life in the South and he has no concept of probably has no concept of racial tensions and those kinds of things. Because in yeah. Britain, growing up at that time, we weren't really aware of the depth of that at all. Mm. Right. So I wonder if some of that diluted Tom's appetite for executing on this. I, you know, I, I think that, I think that the projects with Dave Stewart are, were probably undertaken, not even in the spirit of the Southern accents project. Yeah. Right. I think that don't come around here no more can kind of fit. It is orally a unique experience. Um, but it's, it's got the cranky Southern heartburn of just get off my lawn. So I think it kind of fits in. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of it had to do with fatigue. These were like, it was an 18 month session, longest album at that point they'd ever recorded. They got stuck in the mud trying to self-produce. They brought Jimmy Iovine to hustle it up and get it done. And they just finished it. Right. So then someone could say, to bring it back to me and my book, sorry, I keep doing this. Someone could say, uh, well, that means that it actually wasn't the Southern thing. You're hoisting him on a petard, which isn't true because he gave up on the idea which if you look at the content of like the incoherence of the nine tracks on it that's in one turn of the light that is kind of obviously undeniable another turn of the light is that the best songs adhere to the theme and so the heart of the album is the theme and the third turn is that he packaged it he marketed it and he toured on it and was interviewed on it subsequently as a coherent southern concept album yeah right and so all those things together I, i'm a little bit of feel from your question so i think the fatigue is why we ended up with the product we got but i think they still sort of asserted that it was the initial idea that had come to fruition right but i think like fatigue and fatigue like yeah just fatigue and being and running amok well know, and, and drugs don't help you know drugs that, don't that, help you know i i didn't realize that you know reading that that mike said that um spike there was heroin involved in that the recording yeah. of that song i didn't i didn't i'd read you know that i know that they were high on weed a lot of the time during that record but i didn't know that that had happened so that's yeah. very very interesting like everyone that basically everyone out. everyone except one yeah. person maybe ben i think ben was on cocaine <laughs> just what a what a way to what a way to try to get anything done creatively hey 
I mean, it's the rock and roll. It's LA in the eighties, man. What do you think? It always amazes me though that so much great art comes out of that, right? Because yeah, he's like after three beers, I can't play drums anymore. I'm done. Like <laughs> no coordination anymore. <laughs> but that. So, but building on that, then quickly, then and into because, like you said, where you do gen- sort of dive into more being more critical is on the the subsequent tour. Mm-hmm. And so, and again, I think for me, it was sort of growing up again in England and away from some of those issues. The General Lee with its with its Confederate flag, visually, it's really striking. It's really it cool. Is. So cool you can do you can do a lot that. with that just from an aesthetic standpoint. Right? You can see why it fits for an album about the South. Well, we can use this. And so my my question there is, how seriously do you take Tom or most people of that generation when they say that they don't necessarily associate the battle flag with slavery and racism and all those kinds of things? Because I know that. Probably is a generation that didn't, um, and I wondered how forgiving you are of that argument. Oh, I can believe that they didn't associate it with it, but that doesn't mean that it isn't associated with it. Yeah, right. So this is like intention and outcome aren't necessarily yeah soldered together <laughs> as seamlessly as we like to think, right? And even Petty himself in 2015, when he makes his apology, I think his quote is, it was the wallpaper of the South when I was coming up. I didn't stop to think about it. I think that's entirely believable. And I think that's actually the point, right? Right. It's the fact that we do not think about it, Yeah. right? But that's the problem also with having the the white South be the one South, because then you've got a lot of other people in the South who will think about it, right? And so you're thoughtlessly banding around the most, and it is an alluring design the banding about the symbol of uh incredibly brutal racist uh, i don't know like hostage regime right and of so course, like, yeah, well, this mean... is just like I, i'm not thinking about it but yeah that i believe you that's the problem right like, i believe you've never thought about it that's the problem yeah right which is not the same as me saying well you're like george wallace you know segregation now segregation forever that's not the point yeah. Like the point is, we don't think about it. Well, I think there's a, the, you, I can't remember exactly how you phrase it in the book, but it's the difference between being stupid and acting stupid. Yeah. Yeah. It's the difference it's between, exactly, I'd say something to ask, yeah. It's something around there, right? And it's, it's the same yeah. thing. Like, I, you have to be careful with your wife, right? When you say, I have to be saying, well, that's a stupid way to load the dishwasher. Are you calling me stupid? No, <laughs> no, but that clearly is not efficient, right? You know what I mean? Like, there is a difference between those two. I'm not going to co sign on that specific <laughs> engagement, but I know what you're trying to say. Don't. Don't get me caught up in this domestic <laughs> battle, man. <laughs> but I do agree. Like I said, as I've got older, I, I I think there is that disconnect between saying, "Well, you know, I'm it's the, you know I'm not a racist," but as soon as you hear that sentence, that's that's a big red flag. Or, you, but there are these racist ideas, and just because just because we haven't thought about them or haven't considered them fully enough, yeah, doesn't make them any less racist. It just means that we need to show that we've grown from that. And I think that that's where. The criticism that I can see that you probably received is unfounded because you make sure that you're very careful with that. By the end of the book, you do show that, well, Tom did accept that and yeah. did grow through that. And of course, we all grow up like I was, I'm sure yeah. I had racist attitudes growing up just because you oh. don't know any better and because they're cultural, right? I'm a white guy born in Kentucky. <laughs> right. Of course I did, yeah. you know? But you're, um, spo- but you're supposed to be introspective and look at whether that's a good thing or not. And I think, like I said, that's yeah. where... For me, I was I was a little bit tense at times of the book. I thought, oh, I'm kind of curious where he's going to go with this. But by the end, right. it's like, no, this is this is a to me a view of a human being like all of us 
struggling and making a bad decision, a really bad decision at a point in his life, but moving through it and past it. Yeah. So gracefully and making and ultimately, you know, you know, the, the book opens with his very last public performance, which yeah. in the way it's constructed is a direct repudiation of the stuff that he did. I think that there's a certain argument that I can understand, which would be, how dare you say this? He apologized this about this. Yeah. You're bringing up this stuff, but he already apologized this. He already dealt with this. But that's not really the point, right? The point is the story yeah. of the change, right? And the context that within which the change happened. And that's how it's a learning arc. If you know someone changed, knowing someone changed is less effective than understanding the ways in which they changed. Well, and understand, right. understanding the history, uh, history of where that comes from. That's yeah. That was what I was yeah, going to say. It, you, yeah, you, yeah. You, you're documenting a transformation. You're not. I mean, you are pointing fingers, but I mean, you you're pointing fingers at snapshots in time. Yeah. Of a person behaving a certain way at our time, not at them as a whole human being. Right. There is yeah. a difference between those two things. Again, it's the it's the being stupid versus acting stupid thing. So. Yeah, and I also I I definitely do think that there is um. There are some like ferocious attitudes that don't permit notions of change and growth, right? I'm speaking from the folks on the left, which would think that change cannot happen. Yeah. Right. And I think that's very counterproductive. I think that you have to, you know, we're all in the sinking ship together. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so we have to grant the grace for people to grow, especially if, um, if they're trying to. And for people to talk about it. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. That's not oh, right. yeah. Yeah. You don't want to like cow someone, like beat them into silence, and then they'll just yeah. come resemble. Yeah. Let's let's lighten the mood a bit. So, yes. when when did you get into Tom Petty? What, do you have a sort of a, I have a, a really strong memory of when the penny really finally dropped about how brilliant this guy was, and I have sort of recollections of knowing roughly what my entry point in to Tom Petty was. What was your entry point to Tom's music? So, I know what I always say, but I know it actually can't be true, right? right. And so. What I think is interesting, and we'll talk about this a little later, I hope, is that like the two petties, right? The yeah. pre-Southern Accents Petty and the post-Southern Accents Petty, right? And so my first real vivid memory of Tom Petty was the uh, was the Free Fallen video. And I was just baffled. Like, I didn't know how this <laughs> middle-aged, soft folky ended up my MTV. I didn't know who those dudes with him were. I didn't know who Jeff Lynn was. I didn't know who George Harrison was. I didn't know who Ringo Starr was. I, you know, I was born in 74. I was until 86. I was listening to all of my parents' country music, right? So like Randy Travis and folks like that. And then also some really great stuff, like, you know, yep. Marles and Bones and Willis. And then there was a real unfortunate turn that was kicked off by David Lee Roth's Eat Him and Smile video, or sorry, you know, the video for <laughs> Yankee Rose. Steve Vai's guitar playing entirely ensorcelled me. And I became really transfixed by a lot of bad music. Like 86 was the key <laughs> year for my musical and aesthetic deformation. So then, like a few years after that, like I'm watching MTV all the time, waiting for videos with Tony Katane and I'm like dancing on Jaguars. And <laughs> then I see Free Fallen. And I was like, who is this? Like, how how does someone this old start a career? Because I was an idiot. Right. And didn't there was any. So my first real memory is uh, watching him like watch the girls skate in the mall and then acting goofy in those videos with, yep. with, the, with the elder statesman of rock. But I know that isn't really the first time. Like, that's the first time I knew him as Tom Petty. But I also have vivid memories of the videos for You Got Lucky and for Don't Come Around Here No More. Yeah. But I didn't connect those two things at all. Like, I didn't think it was the same person. And I don't think I can really be blamed for that. Right? Because it's oh. radically different. 
the number of times over the last, well, I mean, probably not so much in the last few years, but when I really got into Petty, the number of times I would put a song on, my wife would be singing along and she'd say, who is this? It's Tom Petty. This is Tom Petty? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is this Tom Petty, and I showed you know didn't know the video for "Don't Come Around Here No More." Wow, that's wild! Yeah, no, he yeah. was a chameleon. He had all these different yeah. looks and different, and his voice yeah. changed. Like he, he yeah, he could, it did. It's his inflections changed, the way he delivered changed. Anyway, so I, I totally get that. Yeah, I mean, but like when I fell in love with him, so then I knew who he was. Didn't care a whole lot. I just told you that I had horrible music taste during the late eighties and early nineties. When it really just sort of hit me is like this tsunami of affection and love and like invigoration it was just randomly putting on the greatest hits at a girlfriend's house okay right and it was like oh wait right then things like locked into place right and so that's when i became a big fan and that's like the most generic way to come into it but there's yeah. a reason why they make those greatest hits albums you know well, that one especially is just... Oh, God. It's insane. And I, mean, I love that you noted in the book, too, that there isn't a song on there from Let Me Up, I've Had Enough. So, yeah, I'm gonna get, Which I'm going to have a lot of fun with talking about. Anyway, but I was going to ask you, because I've been talking about this with people a little bit lately, I think Tom Petty's Greatest Hits might be the only Greatest Hits that I can think of offhand where a new song that's been recorded for the Greatest Hits album actually is a Greatest Hits and belongs yeah. on there. Yeah, I think that that's probably true it's an incredible hat trick i can't think i mean look i'll place money on it if you want to make the bet i think you're right yeah mary jane's last dance i mean that's yeah. top five for most of the most other artists yeah. right yeah uh, remarkable it's remarkable yeah. and just as it laying around i've got this thing and i don't know i haven't finished it yet i've got try work this up maybe like yeah. yeah yeah no i think you're right i can't think of another greatest hits album that has yeah, I don't know. I Something that strong that's a new song. And it's like, you know, in the book, you talk about Benmont saying that, um, you know, because we we always, you know, fans always say, oh, it's the soundtrack to my life. And I love Benmont's comment. It was the soundtrack to mine too. I just heard the songs first. You know? So. Yeah. Oh, that was a heartbreaking moment. I, um, so I was supposed to, I reached out to Petty's camp, actually, Mary Clouser, yep. Mary of Mary's new car. I called her, which was a strange moment. <laughs> and uh, she said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, Southern Accents. And she said, oh, okay, <laughs> let me get back to you. And she called me or emailed me the next day or something. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. And said, sure, we're on. Tom's got to prepare for the Music Cares uh, Person of the Year, whatever the award's called. And then he's going on a tour um, right back toward the end of the tour. And I had tickets to several spots on the tour. I was going to like just pop in on the tour. Yeah. And uh, I was like, I can, let me hang out then. I'll meet then. Let's do then. And they just, just shouldn't even respond to that, which is fair yeah. enough. I understand yeah. Particularly now, understanding that he was going through a lot of significant physical pain, yeah. which I had no idea about. Uh, and then I wrote, to, we had had a few exchanges, and then I was writing to firm up my actual travel plans the day that he, the day that the news broke that he died. And so I thought, well, that part is kind of, that part of the book is is done. I was devastated. Then the 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 stakes of the book became very different, right? Because suddenly yeah. I wasn't just writing a book about Tom Petty, which I knew was going to be not wholly admiring yeah but it's like probably the first book that's going to come out after he died right and that yeah. was a lot um that's a responsibility right that, it, responsibility. That, it changes the responsibility of that yeah for and sure i had put off reaching out to his camp until i was pretty solid of what my argument was not because i'm afraid to change my mind but because i admire the guy and love the music and sure he's charismatic and wanted to make sure i knew what i yeah. thought before he could 
So if he was going to talk me out of something, he could argue me out of something, not just like charisma me out of something, right? right? Just like seduce me out of a position just because <laughs> I'm hanging out with Tom Petty. Anyway, I didn't think that I was going to talk to any of the guys. And then a few months later, Mary wrote and she goes, hey, you know, we feel we all feel bad about this. Uh, Mike and Ben Mott would still like to meet with you. And so I went out and it was oh, still cool. really fresh. It was within, I was out there in January. And so very few months after, after Tom actually died. Yeah. And when Ben said that, it was just, I mean, a heartbreaking moment. Yeah. You know? Well, cause he was a kid when he. Yeah. His entire, him, right? entire career. Yeah. You know, and especially, I think it, it, it's different for a band, maybe like the stones where you definitely get the sense that they're, you know, they've been, they've known each other for years, but I don't think Mick and uh, Keith hang out. You know what I mean? Like they're, they just right. they turn up and they see each other. But you always got that sense with the heartbreakers that they were friends. Like, as you said, I think Ben Mont and Mike don't live all that far away from each other, right? No, they live really close, really so, close to each other. And I'm sure they see each other. I'm sure they just pop by now and again. So there's that mm. that brotherhood thing. It comes across, you know, they lived at Mudcrutch Farm. And so they've got that history that yeah. most bands don't really have. You know, they don't, they don't have that closeness. So I don't know. And then, you know, anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. I it. The intensity of, of of loss was was very apparent with both the guys, but yeah. they're just different. They're different fellas, and they express themselves differently, and uh, and are willing to talk about different things, right? So yeah. there was more of a connection on that issue with Ben than with Mike. When I, I asked, so I wanted to interview Jeff Slate, and Jeff's a friend of Ben Mons, and I asked him, is he really as intense as he seems? Because every time you see him interviewed, he, and not in like a a negative or a mean way, just very passionate about every yeah. single word he says. He means everything yeah. he says, you know? So that came across while he was, while you're in the room. Oh, yeah. It's great. Yeah. Like he'll, yeah. he looks around and then like eyes come on you and it's like, Whoa, whoa punctuated. <laughs> right. No, super thoughtful guy. It was a lot of fun to talk to. Um, yeah. And very sweet. He had just had, his wife had just had, uh, I believe a daughter like yeah. weeks before I was there. Um, so it was very generous for him to give me his time. Uh, he was great and very thoughtful. And, uh, both of them are incredible fans of the music. You know, it's it's fun to. Isn't that like, good though? Don't don't you enjoy? It? I always because I always hate, yeah. hate it when you. Oh, I don't want to play that anymore. I don't like this anymore. You yeah. always get the sense they still love those songs. I think Mike even said like Refugee. You know, he still loves that song. Of course yeah. he does. Why yeah. wouldn't he? You know. Yeah. I mean, one was, of the tidbits. One of the things I thought was funny. I don't think this is in the book. I don't remember. But I talked to Mike in his home studio, and he had this um, mid seventies wine red Les Paul custom. He was holding it while he played almost identical to a guitar my dad gave me, which is why it's seared into my memory. Yeah. And um, not plugged in, just kind of playing it. And what he would do to like jog his memory of songs, like he'd play them and then like come up with a name, which was so incredible. Like he starts playing the waiting. He's like, what is it? He's like, oh, the waiting. Uh, it's just so much fun. So good. And then he like showed me, he took me on a tour of guitars. This yeah. was incredible. He showed me like the, the Rick that was on the cover of Damn the Torpedoes. And all along, while I was talking to him on this pile of cables over in the corner was that 54 broadcaster looks like telecaster right. his main guitar. And he showed me like the, the gold top Les Paul from stranger to the night. And some, and I was like, is that, he said, yeah, it is. <laughs> and he walks over and picks it up. And like, this is incredible. So I've been around a lot of guitars. I play guitar. Yeah. Well, and, uh, but I'd never been around a famous guitar, you know? Yeah. And so again, not Apple, he just picks it up. He's like, yeah, whenever I play this sound guys are always like, play this more. And then he just played a few notes, just a few runs. Yeah. Uh, and what was remarkable to me is just how transparently that guitar has been recorded throughout its career. This is the, the guitar that recorded American Girl, The Waiting, Breakdown, any yeah. number of the other songs. And immediately it was like, oh, that's that guitar. 
like that guitar has a voice that I have heard on all of these albums. Yeah. I had never encountered a guitar that was just that distinctive, you know? And this is not, I mean, maybe I was hypnotized by the moment, but like I can still, like when I, I you can hear that guitar, right? It's right. an incredible instrument. I mean, it just, it was incredible. That was, a, that was, that was worth the price of admission, even if the book had got canceled, just to like see, yeah. like know that something like that exists. And like right? said, you know there's great and famous guitars, of but course, rarely yeah. you never get a chance to, without it being produced, it's not even amplified. Just yeah. the, the, the acoustic presence, the, the natural tone. Ah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and just the history of it, just seeing that thing, right? So it'd be like BB yeah. King's Lucille or the Brian May's Red Special or something. It'd be like, it would almost be yeah. a bit overwhelming to be. I must, how did you keep your composure in that moment? <laughs> oh, I, I wanted to ask him if I could play it, but that felt rude. So <laughs> he was kind of looking. I just reached out and touched the headstock just so I could say I touched it. Oh, no way. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's used to all that too because Mike seems very chill. I'm sure he gets, you know, when guitarists, especially when they come over yeah. and they're, or they're talking, he must be very, very used to all that. And I mean, yeah. man, he's got. He's still got, I mean, no, I know he sold a lot of guitars, but he's still got, he must have dozens and dozens and dozens, right? So there's a whole hallway when I was there that's just a yeah. bunch of guitars. I've got some photographs I'll send you. You can take a look at. Oh man, that'll be awesome. Yeah. It's photographs of me with him, photographs of the broadcaster, and then him with the Damn the Torpedoes Rickenbacker in the, in the, in the hallway. So cool. It's funny too, eh? Because they're really to those, to those guys, that's just the tools of his trade. That's just the thing he yeah. needs to do his, his job, but they don't. I don't think they think of them quite the same way as fans do. You know, I mean, that's just okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a history with that Rickenbacker, but he plays it because it sounds good and he gets the tone yeah. he needs from it, not because it's yeah. this special thing, right? So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's got to be. He's sentimental. Like, he's never, like, so it's filthy. The broadcaster's filthy. Yeah. The, the fretboard is black. And he's like, I've never cleaned it because I'm afraid if I clean it, it's going to sound different. Right. So he knows yeah. that it's like a little more than just a tool. Yeah. You know, like the value to him, I think, is probably incalculable. Yeah. But I'm sure he doesn't. I know he doesn't walk in the room and like, oh, like opening the the case in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> or when, when Tom opens the case with the hat in or whatever. Yeah. 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 But do you wonder about that? Like if you think about, you know, artists coming into a studio and maybe it's a studio instrument. So, you know, the, the piano that, that uh, Freddie played Bohemian Rhapsody on has been played on lots of other songs, mm-hmm. but there would be something different as a musician about sitting down at, with that instrument, knowing the history of it. I think it would change the way you approach it. Oh, you know, I, if, yeah. if I got Bonham's drums, if I was able to, or Ringo's drums, like if I was sat behind Ringo's kit, you'd start playing a shuffle. You know, you, it would just yeah. change the way you interact yeah. with it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, I'm talking about, you know, you, you being a guitarist, do you play in a band at all? Or are you, you just sort of, mm, you're more for yourself? Now. Yeah. There was a period where I was going back and forth. When I had a couple of bands in New York, but right now, okay. just, you know, stick guitars around and, no one was getting together with anyone during the pandemic yeah you know and i just haven't had time to to get anything going i was just curious because i know the comment you made about um don't come around here no more being sort of you know when you really strip away all the the bells and whistles there's not much there Hmm. the bones of the song are very light you know it's not there's no flesh and you know it's but sonically when you do dig into it and really listen to you know take off like i always when i'm doing the podcast i i split out the left and right channels just so i can definitely mm. really yeah. separate them because the heartbreakers were played around with that quite interestingly throughout, yeah. throughout the careers but yeah. there's so much going on in that song but it's all so very much. subtle you know? yeah yeah like so you can take you can take rebels strip it down to an acoustic guitar yeah and it's going to feel like the same song now i am not tom petty or anyone great 
but I have tried to play Don't Come Around Here on no, no More on an acoustic guitar. Yeah. It just doesn't, it's not the same thing. Like it's almost not a song. It's a production artifact, which is incredible yes. and singular yep. and great. And they pulled it off live, but like full band is a very different thing than single acoustic guitar song. Right. Uh, I, I don't think people like it when I say that about that song because it's very much beloved and I love it too, but it is, it's less a compositional success than a production success. It's, it's yeah. It's just, again, I always said the word I always land on is it's just weird. Yeah. In a beautiful, brilliant way, but it's so weird. Like as a musician, you, as a songwriter, as a hobby, a songwriter, myself, I don't know how you get to that point where that, mm. that's the song you've written. And it comes, I think sometimes from those little drum loops, because that drum part, I remember when I first time I heard Don't Come Around Here No More and I know it's Tom Petty, my initial thought is, well, obviously they, did, they didn't do that one live because how the hell would you play that song live? Right, right. Well, you, yeah. The version of Pac-Man, I mean, it's phenomenal live. It's, yeah. It just comes into and becomes an entirely different beast with yeah. Mike doing that crazy solo on that bazooki and there's, he's got yeah. the three, you know what I mean? Like it just no, it's, becomes it's a performance. Live. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever see it live? Did you see that one live? They did it live at least in Nashville on the last tour when I saw them. Okay. I saw the band a few other times. I feel like they played it at least once, maybe in New York in 2012 or something. Okay. I don't remember. People said that that last, the 40th anniversary concert was definitely more of a very stock set, set list, the greatest hits type of thing, because you give the fans what they want to hear. And that's Tom was always very professional about that. Mm -hmm. But it stands in such contrast to the Fillmore stand, mm -hmm. right? And the release that's come out of that where, like you said, that's a band that can do that kind of thing, though. On a dime, flip into a different song, yeah. realize that this is the same aggression. You've got musicians who are so good yeah. and so in lockstep with each other that they can just do that. I mean, you know, that's the whole thing with touring Dylan, touring with Dylan, right? I mean, that you, you don't do that unless you're phenomenal stage musician. That is the most horrifying thing I've heard about a band. Like the fact that <laughs> not only songs that they had never played, but like in keys they had never played songs in. Yeah. That's that's I mean, Benmont, right? So they all look over to Benmont, what are you in? and he's kind of giving, gee, yeah. So he's kind of mouthing, you know what I mean? So they yeah. know where they are. Yeah. It's incredible. A, yeah. No, they're such a great band, like such a great band. Um, when I think about the Heartbreakers as a great band, the song I always think of, it's on the Pack Up the Plantation Live, Southern Accents Tour Rugged. It's yeah. their cover of Shout. Oh, man. I, I've always thought it's just a goofy song, but God, it's it's incredible. Yeah. And performance is like you watch old videos of Tom doing that, and you can just you can feel the energy coming out of the screen, yeah. right? About that, because yeah. I, I always talk to people about you know I, I had the same like when I found Tom Petty, he was definitely older Tom Petty, mm -hmm. and when he was on stage, he wasn't he was moving around a bit, but he wasn't really sort of flying. We watch those old videos and see him shaking and doing going through. Have you seen like, the wow the video of the concert in '78 from the Winterland where he gets pulled into the stage during shot? Yes, and you hear him go, "Oh, <laughs> terrifying!" <laughs> but then he gets back up and yeah, has at it. What that kind of affected him though, didn't it? Too, I read that he, he said he was a little bit more cautious about being that close to the audience again because he wasn't I, sure what would happen when yeah. you go in, right? So yeah, yeah. So just talking about like two kind of last final questions I have about the book are. Did coming out the other end of the experience of writing that book, and I'm sure it took, you know, books take a long time to write and you have to sit with those ideas and those themes for a long time. Did it change your relationship to A, that album, musically or in any other way, or Tom Petty as a musician generally? Did it have any impact on the way you sort of gauge those two things? It solidified my opinion that it's not a good album as an album. Yep. Um, I haven't, with the exception of Dogs on the Run, I've not put intentionally put anything on from that album since like 
the, the book went to proofs. Okay. Um, it ended up deepening my appreciation for Petty as an essential contributor, though probably minor, to like the American Songbook, right? Yeah. The things that you kind of know on the surface that there are these transformations, there is this growth, there's this evolution in the way that he approached his music, that he so genuinely allowed his music to evolve as he aged and changed his taste, right? So yeah. he never became the historical reenactment of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, like the Stones, I think, often have become. Yes. <laughs> you know, so that becomes really incredible. And then you think about the depth of Room at the Top, right? You think yep. about songs like that that are so... He became even more emotionally available, or not available, emotionally um, direct. Yeah. As he moved I through, and that's I think, just—I think available is a good word. I think that absolutely okay. is absolutely. Okay. Yeah, the whole so, of echo, I, the whole I, of echo. I mean, Jesus, it's yeah. I know it's a heartbreaker. Right? It's hard to listen to it for me. It's a heartbreaker. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> I will say that um, I wrote a whole damn book about Tom Petty and didn't learn how to spell the word torpedoes until I got the first <laughs> proof back. Okay, <laughs> hey, without looking and from memory, it does have an e, does it not? Dude, I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> I think so. It was like it's the potato thing, like the damn yeah. potato thing. Um, or tomato. <laughs> the whole thing off. Um, yeah. So and so overall, it was a, a deepening and it deepened my appreciation. It's one of the consequences of one of the negative consequences of writing a book about an artist is that you end up having too much of that artist in your life. Yeah. And um for a while, Tom Petty was the only song, my only musician, only artist my kid wanted to listen to. Right. And now I think it's the only person my kid will refuse to listen to. <laughs> well, Gang of Youths, Warren Zevon, and Tom Petty um, are the people he criticizes me for listening to. Um, but he's listened to the Sonic the Hedgehog soundtrack, so what does he know? Um, <laughs> he's seven. He's seven. He's yeah. got time. <laughs> he's got time to figure it out. Look, I was listening. Look, he's already in a better spot than me. If he, if he knows who Tom Petty and Warren Zevon are, and I thought that, you know, David Lee Roth was the end-all be-all. Um, <laughs> I'm doing better than my parents did for me. Um, but yeah, it was a deepening appreciation of the guy's uh, yeah. you know, contributions. Well, I really hope that people, you know, my listeners, and I've got a, a small but fairly dedicated listener, I hope they get a lot out of this because I really want them to go and read this book because, like I said, it made me, you said, you know, you hope it makes you interrogate yourself when you're thinking about some of these things. And it certainly did with me. It definitely made me question some of the excuses that mm -hmm. I would sort of written into my own narrative around this album and around some of these songs and the way they were presented, especially about the tour. Because mm -hmm. that's made me think a lot more about that type of stuff. And it's sort of that, to me, anytime you get that uncomfortable having to think about these things, you end up better. You end up better as a person. Yeah. You certainly end up better as a music, in terms of music appreciation. You certainly end up that, yeah. that's the case. So, yeah. so I thank you very much for writing what I think is an excellent book. That well, again... I it's one of those things that I don't, sometimes I just don't get how people are taking this out of context. The only reason is they've not read it. They've only read that yeah. one headline or they've misunderstood yeah. what you're getting at. So, Yeah, well, I appreciate the kind words. I appreciate you reading it. I appreciate really, you having me on here. Really I hope um, some of your folks check it out. You know, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a really good 33 and a third. It's hard to compare the 33 and thirds given their slight stature to like right. books. But um, <laughs> I think it does a lot of good work in, in relatively short space. When, you know, as with music, as an author, as an artist yourself, once you've written that book, packaged it up and it goes out, 
now it's really actually not much to do with you anymore. Yeah. Right. Because now it's all on us as our consumers to do something with that, apply the messages in it to ourselves and come out the other end with some sort of feeling or some sort of decision at the end of it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's, you know, there's been a lot of folks who have sent me notes. Amy Ray, uh, one half of the Indigo Girls. Okay. Read it, like tweeted about it, which I thought was great. Um, which was interesting because after I wrote the book, she released an album also in 2019, maybe 2018 called Holler. Okay. This is a, this is an album everyone should listen to. Like it's unappreciated. It's an incredible album, but there are a couple of songs on it. One called sure feels good to me. And one called didn't know a damn thing, which for the part of the book that we've been talking about a lot, it's like those parts of the book, but with steel guitar and in four minutes. Right. Okay. Very um, cool. I'll try that. So I'm for trying sure. to plug, trying to plug that album. So where can people find you if they're looking for any information about other stuff that you've written or where can mm -hmm. they find the book? Where should we send them? Uh, if you're going to look for the book, I would prefer you just to order it into your local indie. A lot of independent bookstores will have a lot of 33 and a thirds, fairly popular series. So they will have a selection of them. There's far too many of them for every bookstore to have every one, but you can order them in and you know it shows up almost as fast as from Amazon, but it's also on Amazon. Uh, there's really nowhere to find me right now. I, I turned off my Twitter handle, I guess deactivated it. And as long yeah. as you reactivate it every 30 days, it, nothing goes away. And so <laughs> I would send myself an email 27 day. I could schedule an email to come 27 <laughs> days later. And then one day I just couldn't be bothered and it went away. And um, so then what website I had, I just kind of let go. There's not, you, you Google me. So, okay. I want to be very clear about this. If you Google <laughs> Michael Washburn writer, there's going to be three people that show up. Basically there's going to be me. There's going to be a guy who's at Indiana University Southwest who writes about some strange precincts of psychology. And there's going to be another <laughs> Michael Washburn who is Brooklyn-based, which further creates confusion, who writes for places like the Epoch Times and okay. so like conspiracist publications <laughs> that are also, and he also writes about China policy. And that is not me, right? <laughs> My stuff will be about books. Some, well, some Amer if you find me on American politics, it'll be at The Guardian, but like New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, places like that. Okay. Um, but yeah, I don't really have a website right now. Uh, I started a new job in late December. I'm now the executive director of an organization called the Kentucky Waterways Alliance, which is a conservation and lobbying group that is uh, seeking to maintain the integrity of the 90,000 miles of streams and waterways in Kentucky. And nice. And the Clean Water Act. So very, very kind of cool. A professional transition from my previous stuff. Okay. Well, I mean... I think we can wrap up. I just want to say, yeah, thank you very, very much for taking time out to talk to me. No, it's not fun. It's been fun. <laughs>